Welcome to Season 4 of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. And when mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning from Ian Dinwiddie, who has two kids and is the founder of Inspiring Dads, where he coaches dads to play a role at home and work. Clear early articulation of values, goals, and expectations for sharing the parenting load was part of Ian's success. But also understanding the societal pressures that judge women as always responsible for the kids, and in contrast, giving men a pass when they make mistakes. And the expectation that even for primary caregiving men, if there is a woman on the scene, she will step in and take the slack. I love the quote he shared, teach your daughter economic independence so in the future she can have a partner, not a master, and teach your son to do housework so that in the future he can have a partner, not a servant. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. Hi, my name's Ian Dinwiddie. I'm the founder of a business called Inspiring Dads. I've got two young children. I've got a 12-year-old daughter, Freya, and a nine-year-old son, Stuart. And my wife is a law partner, a law firm in the UK. And a big part of the things that I enjoy doing working with dads is to help them to balance their, their lives, really, their balance between the dad they want to be, the professional person they want to be, and ultimately to make that work for them as an individual and as a family and something that I've learned a lot about supporting my own wife's career. Great. Thank you. Ian, please tell us if you've experienced burnout at any time in your life and how did you manage that? Or if you haven't, how do you keep burnout away? Because I know so many of us are struggling with that at the moment. 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, Jacqueline. I think, and it really made me reflect back on some of my working life and working career. And I think there was a couple of examples, really. And I certainly got examples from my wife's career where, where she's certainly experienced burnout. But when I was a young graduate trainee with WH Smith Group, I was working in store at Christmas in a place called Cribs Causeway in Bristol. And I was a graduate trainee, I was an assistant manager, and I was thrown in the deep end in terms of business, doing a lot of Christmas recruitment. I was in charge of all the temporary staff staff who came in at Christmas and it was hard work it was long hours it was retail at Christmas ultimately that was it and I remember one night having a really vivid dream and I'm a big Star Wars fan and I had a lightsaber and I woke up in the morning I was like this I just freaked out by my dream and the dream was that I was there and I was fighting a number of hidden masked figures and they all had lightsabers they were Sith Lords or whatever they were and there were four or five of them and I could only defend myself for a certain amount of time I got overwhelmed by these faceless figures and as I was lying on the ground disarmed the the main kind of Sith Lord stood over me and pulled the hood back and it was Susie, and she was the graduate recruitment manager for WH Smith Group. And she stood over me and stared me down. And that's when I think I realised that perhaps I'd been working too long and hard at that particular stage. So quite a vivid memory for me. I'd say in terms of coping with it, I think I knew that it was a short-term activity. I knew that was only a period of about eight weeks of really intense activity around Christmas. We knew ultimately that it would end. And that things would be quiet again, you'd have the New Year sales, I'd move on to another placement within the business. So I think having that certainty that it wasn't forever, it could be changed was comforting. I think the second time I experienced what I would probably consider to be burnout was in lockdown one in the UK. So it was two and a half years ago or so, March 2020, when we were concerned about coughs were everywhere. Actually, there weren't that many cases in the UK, but we didn't know. School started to shut down and suddenly we're all at home. And I remember Lisa and I trying to work out how we would balance how we were going to work. And ultimately, Lisa, with her role, needed to keep going. We were afraid about what would happen to the economy, what would happen to her role. And then I took on the core responsibility for looking after the children, making sure they were okay. Within a week or so, it was all about homeschooling and support for that. And then also, I've got to do my work. I need to keep doing my work. And so I was doing a Saturday and a Sunday working full time. So those were my days. And it very quickly became apparent that I was just feeling sort of emotionally overwhelmed I remember about a weekend so I've probably only done one weekend of that pattern a weekend I was just sitting down on my own about half past six in the morning in the living room just crying and just unable to process what was going on and I sat and I got out a little notebook and I just wrote down how I was feeling what it meant for the business what I could do about it and what I couldn't do about it and that process of getting it on paper and saying actually accepting where we were in many ways and actually one of the things we did was we would have one day either Saturday or Sunday would be a family day and we brought in family movie night and that kind of thing which we still do now and we put in place things that would mitigate against the things we couldn't control we couldn't control the fact we were all in together we couldn't control the fact that the kids had to do all this homework what we could control is how we spent our time when it was possible, we could plan and schedule and make sure that we made the most of the opportunity of being together. And I think that was one of the things that kind of really helped me to understand what I could control and what I couldn't control in many ways. I think sometimes I think certainly my wife's had a situation where she's worked very long hours in the past, she broke her arm, didn't even take a day off, it was just too much work. 
And the only way in her position, the way out of that was ultimately to move to a firm that was better able to support her role within her type of law. It had a bigger organisation, bigger departments, so that kind of thing couldn't happen again. So I've seen that from the other side. But yeah, from my personal point of view, a little bit of Star Wars and a little bit of COVID is my experience of burnout. Thank you so much for those examples. And I can definitely relate to the chaos of Cribs Causeway because I was at Bristol University myself and lived there for 10 years. And I think, like you said, we all hit this point of just uncertainty and overwhelm during COVID. And I think the tools that you use, the journaling, the writing it down, and then seeing what you could control. And we were the same. We did game nights and movie nights. And we also used a tool, which is the family meeting, which comes from a book and a curriculum really that's at my kid's school which is called positive discipline and a huge part of that is us having these family meetings where we sit down and discuss things so it is it's what can you take back control and so that's a great opportunity that we do that thanks for sharing as well with your wife's example often burnout does result in leaving work and I know many mums do wish something like a broken arm or a broken leg would give them a chance to have a break have a bit of an escape but in your wife's situation she didn't even give herself that so yeah it's such a challenge so can you describe a little more we got a little bit of a insight there into what your roles might be at home and work but could you tell us a little bit more about how that works for your family and how did you actually get there did you start out that way or was this a process yeah, I think it's really interesting because it's, it's non-traditional. I think it's still considered to be slightly unusual in that when Lisa and I met, then she was only more than I was. And I think I was working as a management consultant at the time, so I had a good job. Lisa was working as a sort of relatively junior lawyer. And we were, I think we were quite unusual, certainly from my experience of coaching dads, in that we were actually thinking quite a long way ahead, whether that wasn't necessarily by design, but we were thinking about, okay, what if we have children, how do we make this work? How do we make this work for both of us? We don't have grandparents nearby and we want to be present. We don't want to outsource all, kind of all of the childcare, which could have been could have been a result of looking at our career paths and that sort of thing, thinking actually that would work. But I think we had some open conversations and it's, it, in a sense, it's such a long time ago now that I don't really remember exactly how it started, other than I'm pretty sure that Lisa initiated the conversations. We worked out who would be best placed, if we have children, who would be best placed to take the lead with the children, who could be there and how would, what might that look like? And the nature of the law industry is that would be pretty hard for Lisa to do. She was absolutely better at her job than I was at my job. I always like to say I married well on many levels, but she was ultimately better. And also importantly, management consultancy could be done on a freelance basis, whereas law, it was, Lisa didn't really have any role models that looked like part-time lawyers. I think possibly more senior and starting to think about it now is that you could do that on a freelance basis, but consultancy very definitely scoped to work as a freelancer. And so when I actually handed in my notice about six months before, at least six months, actually, must have been six or nine months before I wanted to leave my job because I became a stay at home dad. So when Freya was six months old, Lisa went back to work after a six month of fully paid maternity leave. And I stopped altogether. I'd previously done four days a week in the first six months of Freya's life. It's going back to 2010. So something that was really unusual predates shared parental leave in the UK by a number of years, something that just wasn't something that men really did. And we're only talking a decade ago. We're not talking a whole generation ago, but 
what I did was quite unusual. And so I became a full-time stay-at-home dad. I did that for nine months full-time, just Freya and I, Monday to Friday, and then did two days a week. I did some freelancing work and she was in nursery two days a week. So I was still predominantly the sort of lead carer. And then did the same with Struan when he was born. Lisa took leave. I think I worked as a freelancer, both of the consultancy firms that I'd worked with previously, niche consultancy firms. And so we created this flow where I was the lead carer I guess you would say and that kind of worked for us and that's something we still do inspiring dads is my own business I'm effectively self-employed it's designed primarily to fit around the kids needs so I do the majority of the pickups and drop off obviously post-covid then Lisa's working from home a lot more she's working from home probably three days a week usually so she's around a lot more than she was previously, which the kids really enjoy. I get annoyed when mummy has to go to London. What do you mean she's going to go to London? This is how it is. This is, you may not remember from two and a half, three years ago, but this is relatively normal, this aspect where you go out to work. So I guess in terms of the role, in terms of work and home life is very much that I'm the kind of lead parent. And so I get to experience many of the and certainly when they were little, many of the challenges that men often don't get, and also to build up those skills around solo parenting your children, that I think is really important for building equality and equity within relationships and within parenting. And I think that's, from my experience, certainly when I work with men whose children are a little bit older, this is a lot of frustration from men who don't feel like they're equal parenting partners because they haven't learned those skills. You know, I, I've got a client who, when we first started working together, he very much talked about feeling like he was the third child and how he didn't want that to be the case and how could he unpick this. But he also had work was important and making these different elements work together. So I think in many ways, I'm privileged, I think Jacqueline, to have worked in a corporate environment, to have had the opportunity to spend time making mistakes and learning how to look after children, building those relationships that actually you take for granted when, in my experience, it's just how it's always been. But I have a really strong relationship with my children, a very relaxed relationship with that perhaps not every dad gets to have. And so it is a privilege, but it came from important and intentional conversations before we even became parents. That's fantastic. And so in terms of your experience, but also maybe what you're seeing from the dads that you're coaching, what are the things that the dads can do both at home and at work? Because we really need our dads at work to be role models, to be supporting mums too. So what do you think dads can do at home and work to help working mum burn out? And what support do dads need to help them play this more active role? Jacqueline, I think there's so much to unpick. I think it's often underpinned by our expectations and societal assumptions about the role of men and women in work, but also at home. And I think it starts with intentional conversations. It starts with actually being really clear in your own mind about what sort of parent you want to be. And as a couple, to talk about these things. So how are we going to make this work? What are our ambitions? What does this look like? What could it look like? How creative can we be so that we all, everyone gets what they want? I think some of the challenges with kind of new parents is that we kind of drift into perhaps the practical kind of nature of parenting that maybe we saw role modeled by our own parents or the people who are close to us. And we don't necessarily stop. And I think men are particularly guilty about this, not necessarily stopping and reflecting and saying, actually, is this really what I want to do? Is this how I want to live my life? And if I make these decisions now, what, what are the consequences? How will this, whether I can look after my children on my own, or whether I feel confident doing that, how do we do that? It starts probably before you become parents. 
what does it look like? What does good look like? What's important to you as a couple? And can you get that under control? From a workplace point of view, and it ties into individual kind of desires as well, is to make sure that where it's possible to take, and I understand obviously the landscape around parental leave is very different in the US than it is in the UK, but using the UK example is for men to understand, okay, how much leave am I entitled to? You know, a lot of businesses are enhancing parental leave so that men, in some cases, men can take up six months fully paid leave and that's supported by the business not only in policy, but also in culture. So understand what's possible to do. And to be that man, so actually, this is important to me because I know what my values are. I know what kind of dad I want to be. I'm going to take the leave I'm entitled to. The business wants me to, because they know that if we see men and women as equally likely to take parental leave, then it removes some of those assumptions and barriers that kind of affect women's progression, which is often the example from my wife's circumstances where someone who used to work with Lisa, female colleague, said to me, I didn't think Lisa had children when we first met because I didn't think a mum could do this job. And we need to break that cycle. So on an individual basis to understand what type of dad you want to be. Men often talk about with me, they talk about the dad they don't remember growing up. It's not that their dads weren't great dads in many ways. They just don't remember them being around and being present. I think more and more men are feeling empowered and confident that the opportunities are there to take leave. The opportunities to spend time with your children are there because if you're office-based, certainly, then the pandemic has changed the way that we work. There's no reason why we can't be more heavily involved. And just sort of piecing these bits together. But on a corporate level, men need to see senior men role modelling those behaviours. They need to see senior directors taking the lead that they're entitled to because it's important to see that. Because when men look up the food chain, as it were, within the business, whose job do I want? Actually, they're modelling the behaviours of what they see above them. If the senior men within, say, a law firm, which is the one that I know in particular, you know, new dads in the law firm, partners who are new dads who aren't taking any leave because they couldn't possibly do that because they're so important, then they're less likely than the junior dads, who junior lawyers who are also dads going, well, I can't take leave because that's not what's done here. So we need men to encourage other men to do these things and take the opportunities. Because the children are young in particular and you build these bonds quite fleeting. I think those are a couple of kind of things that I think are really important, Jacqueline. So what do you think? What do you think is really important from your perspective, your experience? I think it is so important, the role modeling at the senior level, very much doing it out loud. And again, not that telling your employees, oh, take leave. But then if you don't, it doesn't make it acceptable. And I think I was that type of boss. People always thought I had a lot of balance because I would always out loud role model my balance, but then I'd be working all hours when people couldn't see it. But I do think that the people that knew that I was that harder worker also felt that they couldn't, when I would encourage them to tell me more, how many hours you're working, what are the tasks you're doing? Because I want to make sure we've got enough staff. They, they were reluctant to do that. So in retrospect, I can see those challenges of when, even if you promote the right behaviors, if you're not doing them yourself, it's very difficult for others to then embrace it and feel safe to do it. I think I suppose one of the questions too that I was thinking about, because, you know, 
unfortunately, my husband and I didn't have these conversations. And in some ways, I was very reluctant to ask and say how important my career was to me. So that's maybe one of the situations where I think is that situation when you're saying the fathers feel like that third child. I can totally understand that because I definitely get to the point where I'm so frustrated and burnt out that I'm treating everyone around me badly. But some of that really came from that inability to ask for help. And that was definitely a key for me after I'd burned out and realized that was my biggest problem. So do you have any thoughts about that in terms of the dads and and when they're struggling to have those conversations with their partner or things that that you do wish the mums would do to help the dads play a more active role? Yeah, I I think it's really challenging if we think about it. I'm always a little bit careful to recommend things that women should do differently because I'm aware of the privilege of sitting here as a man and say actually this is what you should do differently but I think there's something to be said for understanding the frameworks that men and women are judged on parenting and I think men are judged much more kindly in terms of the mistakes that they make and it's almost expected the downside is it's almost expected that men make mistakes and learn whereas there's this sense of motherhood being something that's natural and I don't think in many ways it is it's a learned skill through trial and error but I think being for women generally and for individual mums it's being kind to themselves about actually you're not supposed to know how to do all of this perhaps your parenting skills are passed on from what you read and what you experience and the mistakes you make so I think first and foremost is don't is not to judge yourself harshly or judge themselves harshly or to judge other people harshly I think it's a challenge. I do think it's a challenge. It's a challenge around letting go as well. And it's partly to do with judgment, because actually, if a child goes to school, and they're in the wrong uniform, or they've forgotten something, and it dad has done it, then it's a useless dad, they don't know how to do this. And the narrative is often about how did the mum let that happen? And we need to break this sort of narrative, I think. And it's tricky, but I think a lot of it is to do within couples, is certainly within heterosexual couples, is about women letting go and letting men make mistakes and to build up those skills. Because this concept of mum knows best is almost certainly because mum has had experience and has learned the mistakes. You only forget the nappy bag once. You only forget to pack, check the nappy bag once, <laughs> in my humble experience. But there's all sorts of things. You learn with looking after small children, looking after babies, and running a house, making sure there's enough clean clothes, and all these kind of things, which you learn if you solo parent children, and making sure they're fed and you keep them alive when they're little, ultimately. And dads need to have the chance to make those mistakes, but also not to be corrected in many ways. And I think that is difficult when you have big differences in parental leave and where you have perhaps in Lisa's case, she had six months of full paid maternity leave and I had two weeks of statutory. Now, it's bound to create an imbalance potentially. Had I not then become a stay-at-home dad and had I carried on working and the roles have been reversed, I may never have learned some of the things which I now know and can now help men with, not so much about the kind of the practicalities of looking after little children, but more about the sort of the emotional side, the idea around mental load that a lot of men don't necessarily understand. I think it's about understanding concepts of maternal gatekeeping in many ways, is that there's a protective instinct around it's it's based on neuroscience i think it's a protective instinct 
for birth mothers to look after young babies in a particular protect them from all kinds of threats but sometimes it can be a challenge because it doesn't necessarily allow a dad to be involved or allow the other parent to be involved and that can be quite challenging because then I talk to men who feel like they're on the outside so you've just got to keep pushing you can't give up because if you give up you'll never be as important in your children's lives in their young years as the other parent is and that will build up tensions it will build up challenges for you to unpick later so always try and get in there and make sure and own something I think this is really important sometimes men get confused between the idea of equality at home being I do everything I'm told to do when actually it's that process of being told what to do and when to do it involves an enormous amount of mental and emotional effort on the part of your partner if you own it and you own the mistakes and you own an element of maybe you're responsible for the children's clothes whatever it might be in our house actually Lisa's responsible for all children's clothes I don't do that at all that's just how it's ended up but it means that's her role she does all the shoe buying all those kind of things I have other roles I have other things that I own from the start to finish so I don't interfere with that she doesn't interfere with my bits and pieces and I think that's one of the ways of dividing up but be kind to yourself and as mums Kind of try and let things go. Try and let men make mistakes. Let your partner make mistakes. I think it's so important that you also focus on those confidence and skills and that emotional intelligence of making mistakes. It's such an important growth mindset. And I'd love to talk a little more about the dads that are looking at all the unpaid labor. I was just reading an article by Anne Helen Peterson, and she was saying dads can look at all that unpaid labor and all the load that mums are carrying in the home and look at it and go, oh, yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> Why would I? Because when we are overwhelmed and overburdened by those tasks, it, it doesn't make it attractive to someone else to have to do them either. So that was one of her thoughts. But I think, how else can we help men develop those skills, something they've already got rather than something that they have to try and catch up on later, if they choose to? I've just written down two words, optionality and consequences. I think it's very easy because partly because of the the judgment aspect around what good parenting looks like. Men just don't care enough in many ways. It's very hard. But in many ways, it's just not important enough to do right or do differently. And I think collectively, men are very good at opting out of things that don't necessarily suit. And because society expects that, almost society expects it to happen. It's this idea that if there's a woman around, then the woman in a heterosexual relationship, the woman will pick up the slack. We need to break that because and there's a really interesting piece of research. Dr. Annika Schaefer, she's at Manchester Metropolitan University. And some of her research looked at men who were solo parenting their children. They had sole custody of their children, I think. And they had gained certain allowances in terms of flexible working and work patterns because they were looking after the children. They were primary carers. But what Annika found was that they were concealing the presence of a new heterosexual relationship from their workplace because they didn't want to lose those benefits that they built up because they knew instinctively that if there was a female partner on the scene, then the female partner would take those responsibilities. And to break that kind of cycle, we need to see men as equally capable, which I believe they are from personal experience, much as anything else, equally capable of raising children. And certainly there are lots and lots of dads out there who do a very good job. But the assumption, the kind of the bigger societal piece 
and it's reinforced by cartoons and adverts and all these things that have men as in some way incapable and need to be rescued by a female then it damages the prospects i think for everyone to build something that works because you're fighting against the norm and i think men are as tribal as anyone else they don't want to be seen as different and certainly some of the workplace research that i've seen suggests that if men think that every man's going to take work flexibly or take leave. And they're like much more likely to do that themselves because everyone's doing it. So it's okay to do. But yeah, I think there'll always be, I think there will always be a subset of men for whom sharing the second shift or the mental load at home just isn't something they want to do. They just don't see it as their role. I have conversations with women fairly regularly and you hear things secondhand so and so doesn't really doesn't help out with the kids hasn't changed his work pattern even though that would be really useful because he believes that his role finishes with earning the money for the family and that narrative i think is deep rooted and it will take it'll take a couple of generations to change that and move that in a more positive so that kind of assumption just dies out slowly over time at least I hope it will and I think that's so important that was definitely a conversation my husband and I had is he said I thought my role was the provider and I was like but I wanted to provide too and my career was so important to me but I hadn't been able to voice that but I think with time and coaching I definitely learned to do that and I learned to take parenting breaks where I will try and organize maybe once a quarter to take a, a whole week away so then my husband is in charge of everything but I also then leave him and say if you get the kids to their activities fine if you don't I don't care if you feed them fast food all week I don't care I want him to be the dad he wants to be because the kids then have fun and do different things with him and again we're such different people he's the rule follower I'm not I want them to learn both so that they have these different experiences so I think it's so important to again when you actually give that chance to let the dads to do it on their own terms and with you not being there not being judgmental that can definitely really help but one of the tasks that I still find that definitely falls on me and is one that does drain me is the emotional support for my kids and I think that was so interesting I read Philippa Perry's book and it's called The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and so she's an English author too and essentially she was explaining how we do need to express our emotions we need to let our children express their emotions because from your emotions you learn what you need and then children can learn to express their needs and express their wants and I think very much maybe that stereotype of growing up in the UK and in British boarding school I didn't know how to express my emotions and when I read that and I went oh it makes sense no one I don't know what I want anymore because I don't allow myself emotions so that's something that we've been working really hard with our kids to help them express emotions let them and I'm still having to do those little guides to my husband could you respond with more empathy? Try that again and respond with more empathy. Because like an example, my daughter's um, nine and she's started using a sewing machine. And of course the needle went through her finger and it was okay. It wasn't too bad in and out band-aid on and everything but she was clearly really frightened by that experience and so again and my husband was like you're making too big a deal out of this and I said could you acknowledge the concern she is feeling the fear that it induced in her so she can process it and I have an older son too he's 14 and definitely struggling with self-esteem and so many adolescents with their mental health 
And that is a load on me, an emotional load that I struggled to bear. And my husband's great because once I actually admitted that that drained me and got me down, he would then say, thank you for doing that because I know how hard it is for you to do. So I was wondering as your kids are getting that bit older now and we're not talking about the nappy and for anyone in, in the US or nappies are diapers. <laughs> so we're not talking about those things anymore. We're talking about more complicated mental health support that we need to provide our kids. How are you managing that? Um, and has it started to uh, appear in your family dynamic? It's interesting. It, I think children have gone through different phases and certainly my daughter when she was she's 12 now but when she was really about six seven eight she would she struggle a little bit with anxiety so sort of social anxiety in a way and I think certainly there are lots of unhelpful attributes that come from my side of the family but the anxiety element is more more to do with my, my wife's side of things we did self-coaching and just I guess holding the space so I think in a busy, busy family environment where certainly where there's multiple children and lots of things to do and there's work to be done and there's boundaries which are getting blurred, I think finding the time just to kind of spend time one-on-one with the children, with each of the children, and to not almost hold the space and from a coaching perspective, it's to be there but not to expect anything from the conversation and just leave it open and have the conversation so with both our children we read to them every night I say every night sometimes on holiday it doesn't quite work out that way because they're watching tv late and but as a general rule they will read themselves and then they'll read so last night was true and I read a couple of pages he read I read to him I spoke to mommy on the phone and then say good night to him then I went to Freya she finished reading I then have another book I'm reading, Philip Pullman's Northern Lights, which I haven't read before. So then I would read that and then we chat. And so bedtime goes on a bit longer, but we'll try and talk about what they enjoyed about the day, what went well, whatever there might have been, whatever kind of almost little clues that might have come up during the day. And we just have this kind of gentle conversation, I guess, at the end of the day. My son, he's socially very stable. He's a really good child around other people. But at home, he can be a bit kind of short-tempered and emotional. I guess we've recognised what he needs. So we know he needs to sit in a room with the door shut so he can watch some trashy YouTube thing. And that's good for him. He needs that quiet time where he doesn't feel like anyone's listening. He can just be on his own. He needs that a lot more than Freya does. So I guess from our perspective, I suppose it is... Being aware, being aware of what their kind of needs are and recognising and just being tuned in to what works for them as individuals and then holding the space and spending time individually with each one. Mum and son, father and son, father and daughter, and we mix them up so we don't just spend all the time just together. I think it's in those moments where it's just the two of you that it allows the space to have the conversations if they need to have a conversation. We're blessed with someone who's in a pretty good, from a mental health perspective, is in a pretty good place, I think. That may change, obviously, over time. And you obviously have the coaching skills, so that's part of your job, and I think that's great. Those skills are so helpful to then be able to apply to work and to home. So that's definitely, I think that's a great advantage to have. So before I ask you about your favorite dad joke, because again, humor was something that really helped me. I did improv and stand up comedy, and that really helped me process my burnout and approach parenting in a much lighter way. But before that, a heavier question, which is 
what sort of future and homework life do you want for your kids and how do we get there? The thing that I wish for them is this sort of choices of knowing that all the possibilities are open, that there aren't there isn't an expectation around gendered roles. My daughter goes to an all-girls school and sometimes we talk to her about what society deems that women and girls can and can't do and she just is horrified whenever we throw anything. What do you mean? That's What do you mean that's not going to be possible? It is is possible and I think arming her with understanding about broader societal norms and therefore once you know what they are, you know, what you need to be, what you potentially need to be up against. So I guess all possibilities are open. We role model something that is slightly different. So Lisa's always high performing at work but we share and we mix and match at home in terms of what we do and how we do it that's something I learned growing up my mum had multiple sclerosis diagnosed when I was 11 so my brother and I we took on a lot more of the domestic load than we would have done otherwise had it just been mum looking after husband and two boys and I think I appreciated that different angle is that there was stuff that needed to be done domestically so that was I think that's quite an interesting kind of thing in my own sort of past that kind of all feeds into the sense that actually it's about sharing it's about making it work for the whole family for the individuals within the relationship because otherwise it builds up resentment so I think yeah equitable relationship hopefully it's equal I've got a quote there's a book a lady called Jill Whitty Collins who wrote a book called Why Men Win at Work and How We Can Make Inequality History and uh, which is a really interesting book and then there's a quote that she had, which I took from a Twitter feed a while ago. And she said, teach your daughter economic independence in the future so she can have a partner, not a master. And teach your son to do housework so in the future he can have a partner, not a servant. I think it's about that. It's about understanding. It's about some kind of, not necessarily equality, because I think it's got to feel fair as much as it has to be equal. And so that's what I would hope for my children and for our children. And hopefully we role model that as well at home. That's such a fantastic quote. And yes, I'm loving these interviews with dads because I'm hearing of different researchers and authors that I've come across. It's fantastic. And I think a lot of us that are involved in this work, that learning and reading is such a huge part of how we're improving what we understand and what we offer people as well. So thanks for that example. That was got goosebumps for sure. Yeah. Ian, what is your favorite dad joke? Okay, so I struggled a little bit with this. I don't think I'm quite funny. I'm a funny dad, but I don't do set piece jokes. And my wife at the moment is in a absolutely obsessed with creating sheep jokes. But this isn't a sheep joke, but it has the same kind of play. My favourite joke is a little bit rude, so I won't do that one. But about this one, so going back to my burnout story about, about Star Wars, this is a Star Wars related dad joke. Why didn't Han Solo enjoy his steak? Because it was chewy, which, which is great. <laughs> I like that. I like Star Wars. Love it. I'm a total Star Wars fan. Our dog is called Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, I'm there with you. We're absolute lovers of the Baby Yoda and the Mandalorian and all the new ones. So yeah, like you, we've had our Star Wars movie nights and really tried to spend time together around that too. And do you feel like that humour plays a role in how you parent and work and yeah, I think it's one of having done sort of values exercises part of coaching. I think humor is not one of my values, but fun is. I remember my wife, when we first met, my wife very definitely thought I was a bit too serious. And so it's one of the things that I really like about her in particular, and admire about her, is that kind of sense of fun that she's always injected into things outside of work. So quite serious kind of work-related topics in terms of the law she does. But that sense of fun and I think we tease each other, we make jokes at each other's expense as a family and all the rest of it. And I think 
not taking things too seriously is probably quite a good way of making it. Life can easily feel heavy, but I think adding in some ridiculous sheep jokes, which is what my wife has been. Every time we go on a family walk, she comes up with a two or three new sheep related puns. So I think it makes life a bit lighter. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo, but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone and learning from others' mistakes and strategies? but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress. In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The peer learning collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, The group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. 
My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12 week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging 
using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Feel the pain.